Happy Sabbath. Some of you I have not seen before or in a long time, so I'm going to have to remind you that every Sabbath morning, every time I stand up to speak, I do a smile check. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're okay. You're all right? Smiling. Praise God. It's good for you. It's healthy. Smile, yes. Yes, smiling, yes. You can fake smile too. Fake smile's fine. <laughs> smiling is good. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's good to see your faces. Uh, we have a unique study this morning. I always have a disadvantage on Sabbath morning. There are some of us that have been working out nearly every night. And then there are some of us that come just once a week. So what happens is there's those who have, you know, they're used to pumping a lot of weights, and then there's some that are not used to pumping the weights. So i got to figure out the balance between the weight of the message and the information that I want to share. You, you guys follow what I'm saying? It's a struggle. However, the Holy Spirit is the teacher, amen? So I don't have to depend on my own intellect, but I must submit to his spirit. And as he leads, my friends, by God's grace, we, we will learn something together and grow in grace together. Is that all right? Let's bow our heads for prayer as we ask God to be our teacher this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, your tender regard, your watch care, your mercy that you extend to us moment by moment and day by day. And Father, as we're about to open the Bible, we recognize of our natural selves, we cannot understand the deep things of God. So we ask humbly for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, claiming the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. We're going to begin our study this morning in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. And we're in Exodus. I think we want to start in chapter 3. Now, in the book of Exodus, we find the story of the children of Israel. They have been taken captive. At least they've been there for several hundred years. And God has a problem because he has made a promise that he would deliver his children out of bondage. And when God does something, he doesn't always do it the way we think he should. So he uses a man that is quite timid and afraid. He does not believe that he has any special gifts or any special abilities. In fact, he is so afraid that he is encouraged by God to get his brother to be the mouthpiece for him so that he could go in to speak to Pharaoh and tell the most powerful ruler on earth to let my people go. And this story is so interesting because the story, though it may appear that is only relative or relates to the children of Israel, it actually is a prophetic story telling us what's about to be in these last days. So you're there in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, and I want to begin reading at verse number 1. In Exodus chapter 3, in verse number 1, the Bible says, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock in to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Now, my friends, you guys already know this story, so I'm only bringing it to the fore of your mind. This encounter that Moses is having, he's having an encounter with God. Does everybody agree with that? He's having an encounter with God. And in this encounter, God is demonstrating his supernatural abilities from the jump. And as he's having this encounter, God now begins to give him specific instruction on what he is to do. Now, question, what would you do if you met God? I mean, he shows up. And he's present. You know what Moses did because he didn't realize who he was meeting or who he was encountering. God had to give him instruction. Moses, take your shoes from off your feet for where you stand is what, my friends? Holy ground. Now, my friends, I want you to think about that for a moment. You see, the holiness of God has been forgotten by the people of God. Holiness. God shows up. We sing a song in the sanctuary, and I, it, every church has a different song when, when, when the, the pastors come in, but it says, keep silent, keep silent, the master. Can you think about that? Think about that. When, when, when you enter into the presence of God, holiness, purity. In the morning when you have your devotion, who, who are you having devotion with? Now, think about it for a moment. When you have your devotion, some people just pick up a book. They read their five-minute devotion. Done. I did my religious duty. Done. It's not fellowship. It's not communion. It's not interaction with the Most High. It's just a, it's a task. It's a religious chore that we've completed, and God must look upon me as a holy man now because I've completed said task. Moses entered into the presence of God, and Moses recognized God's presence by the removal of his shoes off his feet. Some of us, when we have our study in the morning, some of us should actually study on our knees. Did you hear what I said? I mean, literally, I think it will help our minds. The reason why we kneel when we pray, it helps us understand that there is someone greater than me. So some of us should open our Bibles, and instead of just reading it while laying in the bed, we should actually get on our knees. And read as if we are submission to someone greater than myself. Moses encounters God. God tells him to take his shoes off his feet. But let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Exodus chapter 3. And it goes on to say in verse number 3, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, what's it say, my friends? Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Now watch what I'm going to tell you right. Watch what it says. Because God is the same. He doesn't change. I have surely 
seeing the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their, what's it say, my friends? So God is intimately concerned about the condition of his children. Listen, I remember one time, I, I think I told this story at the beginning of the meetings, but I'll tell it here for some of you who missed it. I remember crying myself to sleep on several occasions. And in particular, this one time I was crying myself to sleep, I was 19 years old, and my mom and my dad were going through a severe conflict in the family. There was no peace in the home. And I was at Oakwood, minding my business. My sister calls me and tells me that mom chased dad out the house. True story. She calls me and tells me that, and I'm, I'm concerned. And I try to call around, trying to figure out where, where my mom is, where my dad is, get my mom on the phone, talk to her a little bit. She seemed more reasonable. She prayed, and we got off the phone, and I found my father. Now, my father was in bad shape. You have to understand, my father was a smart, smart man. He still is a smart man. At that time, he had two master's degrees, two bachelor's degrees. One of the master's degrees was in divinity. The other one was in uh, education administration. And so here I am, a young buck, trying to talk to my dad about spiritual things, and I'm saying, Dad, what's going on? And he's like, you know, your mom did this and this and this. Went all through a list of all the things my mom did. And I said, but Dad, you know, did you do anything? He wanted to hear that. Then went back and started listing all the things that my mom did again. I said, I hear you, Dad, I hear you. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Besides all that, I said, if God brought the family back together, would you allow God to bring the family back together? My dad said, well, only if God does it. That's what he said, very arrogantly. So I hung up the phone, and as a 19-year-old man, I cried myself to sleep in a fetal position, weeping and crying. No one in the room with me. In fact, at that time, my, my grandmother didn't like me so much because I looked like my dad. And it reminded her that my dad wasn't doing right with my, my mom, so she didn't really like me at the time. She loves me to death now, amen. But at that time, she didn't like me. And so I'm in the room crying myself to sleep, and it was a Friday night. It was a Sabbath. And I remember getting up, putting on my nice suit, walking down in front of that large congregation. They had a special prayer. I remember being on the, the right-hand side of that prayer group, and they prayed. And I remember praying. I prayed my heart out. And I cried. And I said, Father, I said, you got to do one or two things, man. You got you to you give me what the Bible says is peace that passes all understanding, or you have to bring my mom and dad back together. Either one will be fine. And brothers and sisters, I, I testify to the most highest power to do amazing things in the heart of men. As I was on my knees praying in, in that congregation, there was a hand. It was no ordinary hand. Now, yes, there was a sister who put her arm around me because she saw that I was crying uncontrollably, but there was a supernatural hand, my friends, that came down from the Most High, and he touched me. And my friends, there was this peace. It was a supernatural peace that just calmed my complete spirit. It did not make any sense. There was no human that could ca cause that in my life. It didn't make any sense logically because everything was still wrong. But the Most High, as the Bible highlights here, he hears the cry of the afflicted. He sees the burden, and he is not deaf that he cannot hear. His hand is not shortened that he cannot save, my friends. It's the same God then. It's the same God now. And that's why in that moment in time when that hand touched me and I said, man, this is real. 
The peace that passes all understanding is biblical. I said, oh, that means I will serve him. That's what I said that day. Now, at that time, I wanted to be rich. I did. I just wanted to be rich. I, that was my number one focus. And there's nothing wrong with being rich, my friends. If you're rich, praise God. Make sure you use the money to advance the cause. Amen? <laughs> nothing wrong with being rich. But my number one focus was being rich. The Lord changed my focus. He said, Andre, I want you to speak for me. I said, I don't want to speak. <laughs> I'm an introvert. No one believes that when I tell them. But the Most High came, and he took my mouth, and he took my tongue. And from that time, as I submitted to him, he's opened doors. I've never asked to preach, my friends. Do you understand that? Like, I've been all over the world preaching the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, and it's because the Most High has said, Andre, I need to use you in this moment in time. Now, let me tell you something. There are people in this room who are denying what God asked you to do. You've been denying it. You've been running from your calling. Why? The Most High will take care of you. The Most High has plans and orchestrations. In fact, think about this for a moment. When Moses was called at the burning bush, he really had no idea of the gravity of his calling. He didn't know exactly what it meant to stand before Pharaoh. He didn't know that he was going to at one point stand at a Red Sea and literally the Holy Spirit says, lift up your arms. And water parts on both sides and people walk on dry ground. He had no idea that was his calling. Are you hear what I'm saying? And my friends, in these last days, I tell you, these are the last days. I'm going to show you some things that prove without question that these are the last days. But in these last days, God needs a people who are willing to walk in their calling regardless of what they think or what they feel. Regardless of if their friends or family agree with them or not, he needs people that will stand though the heavens and the earth fall all around. Are you hearing what I'm saying, my friends? So here he is, he's called. Now, I want you just to go a little bit further. We're now in Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is still encountering God. In verse, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And Moses answered and said, But behold, this is after he's received his instruction, But behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, what is in thine hand? And he said, what did he say, my friends? A rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And, put forth, and he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob have appeared unto thee. And the Lord furthermore said unto him, Put now thy hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, he beheld his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand in his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it turned again as his other flesh. Now who were these signs for? All right, so these signs at, that are happening in this moment in time, this is specifically for Moses. This is before he goes before Pharaoh. This is for Moses to see that God is with them. So the question I have for you, what is in your hand? Somebody says, I have to have a big business. I have to have a big ministry. No, you don't. You just have to use what's in your hand. What, what capabilities do you possess? Consecrate that to God. 
I don't care how old you are. If you're a young man, a young lady, a little girl, a little boy, what do you possess? What is in your hand? Do you know how to bake? Hmm? Do you know how to write? Do you know how to sing? If you give your gifts to God, God will use that gift to advance his cause. There are many people's birthdays as well, it appears. Now, in this story, Moses goes to stand before Pharaoh, and there's something that begins to happen. There are ten plagues that take place. Now, we're going to use the story as a backdrop to understand our time. There are ten plagues that take place. The first plague is that the water is turned to blood. Whether the water was in the River Nile or whether the water was sitting in a pot, wherever there was water, it turned to blood. Everything they would drink turned to blood. Turn the faucet on, blood comes out. Blood. The next plague was frogs. Frogs everywhere. Frogs in the dough. Frogs in the oven. Frogs in your closet. Frogs in your pants. Put your foot in your foot. Your foot in the shoe. The shoe had a frog in it. There are frogs everywhere. They're multiplying everywhere. Now, in these first two plagues, the Egyptians were able to duplicate those plagues. Stay with me. In the first two plagues, the Egyptians were able to do the exact same thing. However, when it got to the third plague, they could not duplicate the lies. And these three plagues particularly bothered both the Egyptians and the Israelites. But the seven last plagues only bothered the Egyptians. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Stay with me. The first three plagues bothered both the Egyptians and the children of Israel. But the seven last plagues only bothered those who were not God's chosen people. Now, this is important. And now I want you in your mind for a moment. I'm going to leave that almost like a, like a little, uh, um, put it on the shelf, if you will. Let's put it on the shelf. I want you to go to Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2, I want you to make an observation. So I'm taking you from a story. Now I'm going to try to establish a principle. In Daniel chapter 2, we see an image that's made of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet part of iron and part clay, and then there is something unique at the end. We're looking now at verse number, let's look at verse number 34. Pay attention. Verse 34 of chapter 2. The Bible says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them into what, my friends? Pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of a summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the mountain, or smote the image, sorry, became a great mountain and did what, my friends? All right, so let's put it like this. Forgive me for my horrible artwork that I'm about to do right now. 
So here's my image. You guys see that? That's my image. That's my artwork. That's going to the Smithsonian, everything. It's going right there. According to the prophecy, there's a mountain over here. Let's just say that's a mountain. And there's a stone that is cut out of the mountain without hand, and this stone smites the image at the foot. Everybody follow? When the stone smites the image at the foot, the stone becomes a mountain. Everybody follow that idea? It doesn't start out as a mountain. It grows into a mountain. So here's a mountain. The stone is cut out without hands, meaning that it's a supernatural divine intervention, strikes the image at the feet, and the stone becomes a mountain. And the Bible says it fills the whole earth. Are you with me? All right. Stay with me. I want you now to go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Watch carefully. In Isaiah chapter 11, it starts out by talking about Jesus. And then it goes into the establishment of a interesting scenario. So let's, let's start at verse number... Let's start at verse number four. It says, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Doesn't that sound interesting? A wolf dwelling with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. So this sounds like a little bit of heaven. Doesn't that sound like heaven? That which is venomous is no longer venomous. Children now can play with little serpents. Don't let them play with serpents today, my friends. And then it says in verse 7, and the cow and the bear shall feed together. Isn't that interesting? Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. So you know that's not today. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy, what's it say, my friends? Interesting. For... For, it says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of what, my friends? Interesting. So notice the language. So this in Daniel 2 says that the rock became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Isaiah 11 says that this, whatever's happening, the reason why everything's so peaceful, the reason why everybody's getting along is because the earth, earth is full of, of the knowledge of God. Are you with me so far? Okay, now watch what happens. So keep that in mind. I want to do something else. I'm trying, trying to walk 
you to the point where we are today. So watch this. In the same chapter, it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Now tell me, what is an ensign? It's just a fancy way of saying sign. It's like a banner, right? So let's just put this up here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a banner. So there's going to be someone that's the root of Jesse, and it will stand as a banner. I'm, gonna put, I'm just going to put the cross here. Is that okay, guys? Okay. So that way you know it's a good flag. It will stand as a banner. Now pay attention to the language. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from now when it says recover what does the word recover mean yeah he's gonna he's gonna bring them back he's going to restore so there's an ensign there's a flag okay and in that day he's going to gather his people he's going to gather his children watch what it says He's going to gather, recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Interesting. Where is he gathering them to? His ensign. Let me write, I'm going to put it here so you guys pay attention. And I lost my page by opening this marker. It's an ensign. And he's gathering all the people from around the earth, from the four corners of the earth. And they're gathered to this ensign. Everybody's being gathered here. They're gathered to the sign. This is the, the rallying cry to the ensign. What is that ensign? Stay with me. Go back to, I, I, I'm, I lost my place. You didn't lose yours, amen? So here it is. It says, verse 12, And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. And they shall fly upon the shoulders of Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Ammon and Moab and the children of Ammon, sorry, and, shall, and they shall obey them. Now, again, I'll explain that in great detail in a moment. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of who, my friends? Interesting. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and shall make what? Men go over how? Well, that's interesting. This book of Isaiah is written after the children of Israel have already been delivered from Egypt. So what is this Egypt that is being spoken of? What is it that's being dried up that the people of God now are able to leave all these other places around the world and walk on dry shod? That's what it says. Then it says this, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel 
in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. You guys felt that? Assyria. Now, if I had a map, I should have brought the map. I should have showed you the map. On the map, Assyria is considered the old Babylon. So in the Bible, Assyria is the king of the north. Egypt is the king of the south. Are you, are you following so far? So the way the God's people were delivered out of Egypt, the Bible indicates that in the last days, God's going to do the same thing to deliver them out of Assyria or Babylon. The way is going to be dried so that people can leave and come to safety and come to the inside. Watch this. Let's go a little further. We're still in Isaiah. I would like you to go to Isaiah, the 60, 66. Isaiah 66. And I want us to read verse number 18. Now we're making an observation, okay? We're studying this morning. Isaiah 66 and verse number 18, the Bible says, for I know their works. I'm sorry, is that right? Yes. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather, what's it say, my friends? All nations and what? Tongues, and they shall come and see my what? Now stay with me. So all nations, just like in Isaiah 11, all these nations are being gathered to a sign. It says in verse 19, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nation. So those who come to the sign are then going to be sent. So whoever comes to this sign, whoever comes to this sign, when they get here, they're now going to be sent out to go get others to come. Are you following me so far? Stay with me. So watch this. It goes on to say, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape unto them, unto the nations of Tarshish, to Pul and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javon, to the islands afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory, where my friends? Among the Gentiles. And they, shall bring all, and they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of the nations upon horses and in chariots and litters, upon mules and upon swift beasts to my, what's it say, my friends? Okay, so watch, watch, watch what I'm going to tell you. Here's the imagery. In Daniel 2, there's a rock cut out without hands, strikes the image at his feet. The rock grows into a great mountain. It fills the whole earth. We read in Isaiah chapter 11 that the knowledge of God has filled the whole land. That's why everybody's at peace and nobody's fighting and everybody's calm and cool. But when, in order for that to happen, they all had to come to a sign. They all had to come to a place where they recognize who was in charge. Under whose banner are you marching? When they come to that sign, when they come to that realization, then they are sent out to gather others, to come to the sign, to come to the holy mountain, to be gathered as one body and one church. Because I told you, my friends, the other day, there are only two churches in the world. Not, I don't care how many denomination names there are. There are good believers in every church. Hear me when I tell you. 
There are true people of God in every church, people that pray honestly to God in every church, but God is calling people under his banner today. You say, Brother Waller, what is that banner? I am so happy to tell you this morning what that banner is. Some of you have missed what that banner was, so I'm going to make sure before we are done that you understand what that banner is. In order to understand it, we're going to go back, a quick review to bring us to our present. I want to start in the book of Genesis for a moment. Go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis. What is that banner? What is that sign? In Genesis chapter... Four, Cain and Abel are brothers. Cain does not like that his brother is being faithful to God. So Cain kills his brother, not because uh, Abel was doing something bad or disrespectful, but because Cain was faithful. And by being faithful, you automatically condemn those who want to be in rebellion. Does that make sense? People don't like people doing good when, you're doing, when they're doing bad. In fact, when you're doing bad, don't you try to get other people to do it with you? It's either you do it, get others to do it with you or you try to do it by yourself. But you don't want to be doing bad and somebody over here doing good. You'd be like, yo, get out of my face, man. You know, like, don't judge me. They're not even talking to you. You feel judged. <laughs> That's just how we are. Human nature is strange like that. But in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother. And I want to focus particularly in verse number 16. Actually, verse number 14. It says, Behold, thou hast driven me, Cain is speaking, out, of this day, out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And watch what it says. And the Lord set a, what's it say, my friends? The Lord set a mark or a sign upon Cain, lest any finding him should do what to him? All right. So there's a mark on Cain by the Lord, and that mark was for protection. Everybody, everybody remember that who was here? That mark was for protection. Let's go a little bit further. I want you to see Ezekiel. Go to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. Chapter 9. God is about to send judgment on Israel, and there is a vision that's given in Ezekiel 9. Verse 1, it says, He cried also in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, which had the rider's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a, what's it say, my friends? Set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly, what's it say? Old and what? Young, both maids and what? And women, and come not near any man 
upon whom the mark is the mark and begin where? At my sanctuary. So to stop, stop for a moment, we're thinking. I'm trying to get everybody caught up and at the same time move our people forward. So the mark was given by God for the purpose of protection. Does everybody understand that? That's what the mark was for. It was for protection. Now I'm going to give you another word that does the exact same thing. Go with me now to the book of Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Another word that teaches and does the exact same thing. Revelation chapter 7 and beginning at verse number 1. Revelation chapter 7 and beginning at verse number 1. The Bible says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east. And what does he have? He has the seal of the living God. And cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the sea, to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have done what, my friends? Sealed the service of our God where? All right, so notice that the mark was designed for protection, and so the seal of God is designed for protection. Don't, don't destroy anything yet. We need, I need to mark my people. I need to make sure they are clear so that when you send the destroying angel, you have that blood on the doorpost. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's the same idea. The blood on the doorpost protected the people of God when the seven last plagues were falling. You guys remember that story? All right. So, Stay with me now. Now, you remember when Moses went to God in the Mount of Horeb on the bur- at the burning bush. Moses goes and delivers Israel after the many manifold glories of God. And Moses literally brings those same people back to the same mountain where he met God. Anybody paying attention? So he first, by his own personal, intimate communion with the master, has this fellowship he receives instruction, then he's sent and brings the people back to have a similar experience with God themselves. So what began as one man and one person now grows into a great army of people. You could say they are a mountain, a nation, because that's, that's what a mountain means in Bible prophecy. It is a nation. It is a kingdom. All right. I hope you're staying with me right, right now. So we have a mark as a means of protection. We have a seal as a means of protection. Let's go a little bit further. Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And looking at verse 11. Romans chapter 4, and we are looking at verse 11. When you have it, just say amen. amen. Now watch what it says. And he received the sign. Now this is speaking of Abraham. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. 
that he might be the father of them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. I'm going to focus for a moment and make sure you get this point. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward seal. Are you with me so far? Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward seal. The inward seal being that God works his rights. Now, do you guys remember the story of Abraham? Abraham was trying to fulfill God's promise by his own flesh. What do you mean? Well, Abraham, God told Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, well, it must be my man Eliezer who's going to be giving me a son. God's like, no, I'm not going to use Eliezer. I'm going to use you. He's like, oh, okay. Sarah's like, well, why don't you use my, my you know, Hagar? Brings Hagar into the picture and causes a whole, no, a whole nother set of problems. Are you following the story? But he uses, and I'm speaking in very grown-up terms, he used his flesh to try to fulfill the promise of a child. And the child that he produced was the fruit of his own righteousness. Nobody's paying attention this morning. The fruit that he produced, that he was able to create, was the fruit of his own righteousness. It was not the fruit that God promised to work in him. So God, to demonstrate that it's not by his flesh that this child of promise would be born, he has him do an outward sign of an inward dependence. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So he has him circumcise his flesh to say, it is not by my flesh that this child is going to be born. It is a supernatural intervention in order for the fruit to be blossomed in the, in the womb of my wife. And that's powerful because that tells me something about our Christian walk. Now, how many of you have tried to do the right thing with your own flesh? I hope you hear what I'm saying. Many of us have tried to help God fulfill his promise in us. I know what it goes, I know what it's like because I've done it many times. It goes something like this. I will never do that again. This is my last time. I know it's wrong, so this is it. Sometimes it's two days later. Sometimes it's an hour later. And we're right back in the same mess. You see, you use your own flesh to solve the problem. God promises a supernatural intervention. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and he's going to work inside of you. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, gentleness. Those things are supernatural. You and I don't have them. So you see, we think we do have them. That's why we keep trying. Anybody listening to what I'm saying? See, that's why it's even dangerous. You know, the Bible says on the seventh day we're supposed to go to church. We are. We're supposed to keep the Sabbath. We are. But some of us go to church on the seventh day in our own flesh. Nobody heard me. Your attendance in this place is not righteousness. You know, the, you, know how the, you know how the fourth commandment starts? Remember the Sabbath day to 
keep it holy. Well, how can you keep something holy if you're not? In order to keep it holy, he, the Holy One, must work righteousness inside of you. Therefore, the Sabbath now becomes a sign of complete dependence on Jesus. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You see, we've missed it for so long. That's why we've been on planet Earth for too long. Because we think that our attendance is qualifying for something. Our attendance is, you say, even when you leave this place, I don't even know what your plans are. But, you know, some of us have lay activities planned. Some of y'all know exactly what I mean by that. Is righteousness planned? Is, do, you have, do you have the reality of your complete 100 dependence upon God that at every moment of every day you're saying, Father, please order my steps in your word? I remember the true story. I'm going to tell you a true story about me. And I, and I also put myself in a dangerous place. Whenever I share these stories, somebody always tries to come back and hold it over my head. But here we go. I'm going to share a story with you. One time, my, my sister was being somewhat disrespectful to my mother. And I was an older guy. I had to be like, like 20, 21. And my sister's just being disrespectful. She's a you know, teenager. And I'm, I'm listening to her. You don't, first of all, you don't mess with my mom. I don't care who you are, Right? And so she's in there just yapping and yapping and yapping and yapping and yapping. I said, you know what? This needs to stop. So I go in there. I pick my sister up over my shoulder. I pick her up and I walk her into her room. And I put her in the closet. And I close the door. Like, you need to stop talking to your mom like that. And, I was, you know, I was upset. Then I went downstairs. So we had, we had the basement, we had the regular floor, we had the third floor. So I went from the third floor, I went to the basement. That's where my, my little apartment setup was at. I'm in the basement, and I'm mad. Now, you have to understand, I'm mad for two reasons. A, I'm mad because my sister disrespected my mom, but I'm extra mad because I got upset like that. And I'm down here having a conversation with God, because me and God, I'm, I'm, uh, with me and God, I, I, I believe that honesty is the best policy with him. I, I believe that I can't be pretentious. Like, we can be all this pretentious stuff in church. Like, this is pretentious. Like, this, this is all pretentious. We all pretend. Like, you know, the deodorant you put on this morning, that's pretend. We're pretending. But I believe with God, he knows how we really smell. You feel me? So I'm down there in the basement. And as I'm in the basement, I'm having these com- this conversation with God. And this is how the conversation is going. God, I hate you, man. And I wasn't saying in English like that. I was, I was cussing. I was upset. Because you, you expect me to be holy. But all I have coming out of me is not holy. I try, but I'm messing up. What do you want? And this, I'm down here just having this conversation with the Most High. And the Most High comes, comes to me, and he says in a very small voice, go talk to your father. I was like, I don't want to talk to my father. And the impression comes again, go talk to your father. I said, all right, whatever. So I get up, and I go up second floor to third floor, get up to the top of the stairs. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm about to give my sister another piece of my mind. So I was about to go to the right. Then I was like, nah, let me go talk to my dad. So I go to my left. I go into the office, and as I go in the office, my dad is working. My dad, I, my dad works all the time, man. He's there typing. He's just typing away. 
He doesn't even look up at me. I don't know if you ever have family members like that. They, you come in the office, they don't even look at you. They, they, know, you know, they know you're there, they're just not looking at you. So I'm in there, my dad's typing, he's not looking at me, and I, he says, what do you need, son? Now, my friends, what I intended to do was have an intelligent conversation with my father to let him know that from this point going forward, I plan to be an atheist. That, that was my intent when I went into the office. I just wanted to let him know in a very civil manner that at this juncture, I no longer wanted to believe in God, and I didn't want the, the restrictions of religion on my life, and I just wanted to be an atheist. So I, go in, I sit down. I said, son, what do you want? And I say, I hate God. I hate him. My dad stops typing. He turns around. <laughs> you, again, you have to understand my father. My father, again, he, he's a very smart man. He has two master's degrees, one in divinity. He's a, he's a religious man. And he turns around, and he's no, he's no, he's no frills, man. This is a, it's a straight shooter. Happy man, but straight shooter. He turns around, and I expect it now because I didn't expect to yell that out. You know what he did? He didn't say anything, which is amazing. And he got up. And he hugged me. Now, my friends, you, you may not understand the significance of that moment in time. In that moment in time, the Most High communicated to my father's brain and said, please give that boy a hug for me. You see, in the, in the process of my rebellion, you hear what I'm saying? I, I hope you hear what I'm saying. In the process of my rebellion, the Most High ignored everything that I was saying because he understood my frustration. And he loved me. You see, in the midst of my frustration, he loved me and he hugged me and he said, son, I got you. I understand everything that you're going through. Do you know, my friends, I'm, today I'm not an atheist, Amen. The Most High loves each and every one of us. And some of us are in bondage. Just like in Egypt, the children of Israel were in bondage. The Most High heard the cry of their affliction. You say, I'm not going to leave him there. I'm not going to leave you there. You can be free. And Jesus said himself, he who I set free is free indeed. It's free indeed. Somebody says, well, I don't want to be a Christian. Christians are boring. But that's because you haven't met the right Christian. <laughs> Christianity is not boring. You give your heart to Jesus, there are exploits, activities, soul-winning activities. There, you know what? I'll tell you the truth. True story. I used to not like reading this book. Everything spiritual I didn't like doing. I'd rather watch movies, play video games, go to step shows, go to parties, whatever. I'd rather do everything else. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, then all of a sudden you'd be like, huh, this is, this is exciting. You'd be like, well, how does that happen? Because it's the Holy Spirit. He says, you are a new creature. All things are become new. There is a supernatural work brought into the human element that you cannot explain with logic. Deliverance. So when they, when they are sent forth and, and Abraham is here, <laughs> his outward circumcision was a testimony to the Most High 
of his supernatural work of righteousness in his heart. So it will be in the last hours of earth's history. Now, again, the sign and the seal were together. Stay with me now. The sign and the seal were together. Now, the seal was for what? Protection. The mark was for what? Protection. But now we have a new word, sign. For a few moments, indulge me here. I want you to go with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 31. We're looking at verse number 17. Actually, 16 and 17. 17. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward seal of righteousness. Exodus chapter 31, verse 16 and 17, the Bible says, Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a, what's it say? It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. Ezekiel, chapter 20. Look at verse 12. Ezekiel 20, and look at verse 12. The Bible says, moreover also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a, what's it say, my friends? A sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that does what to them? So the Sabbath is a sign that God does a supernatural work inside. Verse 20, look at verse 20 of same chapter. Verse 20 says, and hollow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your, what's it say? All right, so I don't know where I put my marker. Okay, here we go. So here, I'm making a strong suggestion to you that the Sabbath is the outward sign of an inward commitment to the Most High. The world will have a different one. And for the next, I don't know, I'm going to show you a video. I want you to watch. I want you to hear what they are saying. In other words, I'm not making this up. A few years, it's almost like I, I went into a, a vortex and I, and I hadn't done research in a while. Then all of a sudden I did this research and I'm going to show you this video. And I want you to hear what they are saying, not what I'm saying. So there's a sign that we have that God has given us. And there is what we call the mark of the beast. And those of you who missed several nights, you may not understand fully, but that's okay. You will understand this video, I promise. So let me show you this. This one here. Wait, let me say something. I don't know if this is going to work. I think it's going to go straight to the thing.
in a work, work, work world. What difference will one day make? The Earth won't alter its course. Cats and dogs will be cats and dogs. Rain will still fall from the sky. So take time for Sunday. Just know that your truck has a little thing for Monday. Well, we got to get the, this story on this Sunday morning. Pope Francis has been sick. He's, he's, he's been a bit ill. He's a lot better. And he was just recently in southern Italy speaking to an agricultural community that uh, was, you know, unemployment is sky high there. And he said, of course, you know, the poor need to have jobs and that's going to make them feel better about themselves. But the most important thing in life anyway is your relationships and your friends and your family and obviously praising the Lord. And he says, you know what, is working on Sundays true freedom and basically says, you know, all of this hard work that people are doing on the weekends on Sundays is having a negative impact on their lives. It's so easy to let just work seep in. I mean, if you if you're home on the weekend and you have, you know, job Monday through Friday and you just oh, I'm just going to get some work done. I'm going to go down to my office, do some work. I'm going to get this done. But you don't realize then what it's taking away from that day of rest, that day of family and that hour, that two hours just starts to snowball. And I think he has a great point. Yeah, well, of not course he does. I mean, Ju Judaism takes this very seriously. Orthodox Jews do not mess around. And I admire this so much about the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And again and again, you see this in the Old and New Testaments. Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't work. It's, it's almost like people, it's baked in, have always had this temptation to let work crowd out all the other things that matter. Family, faith. And they have to be told again and again, knock it off. Don't work. It's interesting. You think people yeah. are lazy, but they Probably work we should be debating okay. a bill requiring every American to attend a church of their choice on Sunday. That was Senator Sylvia Allen yesterday talking about the possibility of forcing people to attend church. Very late appropriation meeting and we were all extremely tired. Uh, I made a remark about uh, America's in a need of a moral Allen believes rebirth. the country is heading in the wrong direction and to prove her point she told a story about her youth. I can remember it wasn't until high school I understood there was anything like heroin drugs. It just wasn't talked about in our society. It was a different time. People prayed, for people many went years, to church. Most businesses were closed on Sundays in the U.S. But for many decades, shopping on Sundays has become the norm here. However, in Greece, it remains a major point of contention, pitting religious tradition against recent economic realities. Special correspondent Malcolm Bravin reports. In Piraeus, Greece's main port city, the churches are filled to bursting point as Orthodox Christians maintain traditions handed down the generations. Here, Sundays are for devotions to the saints, not for worshipping at the altar of profit. The city's bishop has condemned Sunday shopping as an act of war with the church. But in Saint Evangelistries, Father Yorgos Yogakopoulos is more measured. We are of the opinion from a religious point of view that the sixth day of the week is provided to man for communication with God, but also that attempts are being made to get rid of what we know as normal life, to try and turn us into robots and machines by making all the days the same, every day a working day, all days without meaning. 
Sunday has been enshrined in law as a day of rest here in France for more than 100 years. And for some, at the heart of this debate about working hours is the impact any change might have on family life. I think it's important that people have a day where they can all meet, because it's very complicated to get together otherwise. There are other things to do on a Sunday when you're with your family, other than hang around in shops. But my personal opinion is that people should have a choice to work if they want. Some French unions, though, are keen to keep the ban on Sunday trading in place and have taken legal action to prevent businesses from opening. The unions want to preserve Sunday as a day of rest and relaxation in France. Everybody see that? And that's only halfway through. So that's there's another several videos and newspaper articles and all showing this push for Sunday sacredness and not just for church attendance, but for economic reasons as well. So it used to be that I would stand up and preach stuff like this and it'd be like, I have one or two things I could show you, but I have hours of material I could show you showing that there is a movement afoot today. The question is, as we see this storm approaching, my friends, because I understand it. Like, I, I see this, I understand what's about to come down the pike. I understand that there's only two powers and only two churches. It's those who will be obedient to what God says to do and those who won't be obedient to what God says to do. The question is, whose side are you going to be on? Are we going to obey God? Are we going to obey, obey men? I'm going to show you something else. Listen to this. Now, this one is uh, a Jewish lady, um, a non-practicing Jew. So, Judith, you know, it's kind of the perfect weekend to talk about an Easter weekend. And, um, you know, we just had Passover, right? So let's talk to me about talk to me about the Sabbath, what it means to you. And just religion aside, what it means to you. The Sabbath is two things to me. One, it's this incredible idea. It's really one of the great ideas in human history. It's transformed the world. It's affected the way we've lived for thousands of years. And I was interested in thinking about it, studying it, learning its history before it kind of disappeared from our lives. So that's, that was the big idea that I, that I was, had about the Sabbath. And then I was, what it meant to me personally was it was a way to get outside of the work-a-day, driven, careerist life that I was leading. You know, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, Christians, any religion, um, people have these moments where they feel like they're searching for something, right? And then it can be even harder now, as you say, you know, we have all of, we're connected, I'm showing <laughs> my Blackberry and my iPhone, and you're always connected. Um, and sometimes, do you, do you think it's always about religion, or is it just about connecting to source, connecting to family? pulling back and not being so involved in, in the rat race. Don, that is exactly the point. That's exactly the point of what I discovered about the Sabbath, which is, is that it is, a re it is a really good idea uh, for people, for families, for communities 
to set aside a structured time in which to connect with each other. And that is, at the heart, what the Sabbath does. Hmm. Uh, you said, this is a quote from you, you said it's um, collect, a collective time illness. What does that mean? Collective time sickness, actually. Um, I, I say we're, so we're sort of, um, we're driven by time yeah. uh, rather than driving it ourselves, and it's making us sick. The idea of the Sabbath is not just that people, all people have the right not to work, which, by the way, was a radical and new idea when it was first conceived and written down in the Fourth Commandment. Not, it's not only that. It's that all people have the right to work, not to work, at the same time so that they can be together. And one of the things that's happening to us is that we're all uh, we're, we're getting on these very different schedules and we're having a very hard time figuring out how to come together. And what the Sabbath does is it creates this situation in which there's just a structured period in which we can come together. So is this the first step? And maybe that is the answer to my next question is going to say, what's the first step if, pe if someone's watching and they say, you know what, I, I need to do that? Um, basically, the first step is to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you, you bring it into your life and try to get your family to do it with you. Uh, but one of the things I argue in the book is one of the ideas, the political ideas sort of embedded in the Sabbath, is the idea that as a society we have the right to take control of our time and say maybe as a democratic society we want to decide to bring back some rules about what can and cannot be done one day a week. And we might want to start thinking about ways to encourage people not to work on that day. Oh, very good advice. The book is called The all right, did you guys hear that? Well, did she suggest that we have a revival and pray and consecrate ourselves back to God? Her, her suggestion was we need to, as a democratic society, make a law and encourage people. Yeah. So, it, so my brothers and sisters, what I'm, what I'm presenting to you today is, look, we're coming to a place where we're all going to be tested. So my mind says if I see trouble coming, it will be silly for me to put my head in the dirt. Do you guys see what I'm saying? If I see trouble coming, then I need to prepare. I need to gather my children. I need to gather my family. I need to gather the church family and say, family, we need to pray together more. We need to spend more time together in study and prayer to make sure that we're anchored. And then we need to be actively engaged in showing God's love in the community. Amen? Like the, like the young preacher said this morning, we need to be actively engaged in service. We've been too selfish for too long. That's why church, one day a week, we're cool with that. Six days a week, we do whatever we want. No, my friends. You know the Bible teaches that the church, the New Testament church, met daily. They broke bread daily. They were encouraging each other daily. Some of us are fighting battles by ourselves in our homes. Why? Because I think a sister said this morning, she was like, we need to be family. So as we see the day approaching, let's press together because our Lord is about to deliver us. Amen? And we need to press towards that sign, the sign of the Sabbath, a symbol of our complete rest in his righteousness. Amen? How many understood what we studied this morning? Let me see your hand. Let me see your hand. Praise God. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I'm going to make an appeal this morning. 
There are persons that have already said they wanted to be baptized. Those people, if you already said you want to be baptized, can you just come up here very quickly? Come on. Yeah, if you, if you already said you want to be baptized, come up, come up very quickly. Yeah, rebaptize. That's fine. Rebaptism. Who, who else was that? Who else said that to me the other day? She's not here. Now, there's going to be a baptism next Sabbath. And if you want to be a part of that baptism, I'm going to ask that you just, just come up here while we're praying. You want to be a part of that baptism next Sabbath, just come up here while we're praying. And ask God to allow you to work righteousness within you. Every head is bowed. Will you play for us? Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Is there anyone else? Come on up, sis. Come on up. We're having baptism next Sabbath. You're making an open declaration that I'm on the side of Jesus. Is there anyone else? Is you and Jesus? Come while he's calling. Be praying, church. Is there anyone else? He's calling you today. He wants all of you, not some of you. You have not committed yourself via baptism. You want to be baptized. Just come now. Just come now. My second appeal. This morning, you want to consecrate yourself to God. You've heard the message this morning. You want to stand on the side of right. You want Jesus to put his seal on you. If that's your desire, just stand where you are. You want Jesus to put his seal on you. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being loving and merciful to us. Thank you for giving us a warning before the trouble comes. We ask, Father, that you take our hearts and you seal them with your Holy Spirit. That we will not turn to the left hand or to the right hand except you tell us, Father, go this way, walk ye in it. Father, for those who have stood to commit themselves to baptism or rebaptism, Father, I ask that you anoint him with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Speak to their hearts and minds. Father, there have been so many unfaithful souls. I pray that you seal these souls, Father, with their decision for you. That you beat back the enemy of darkness who has sought to hold them, Father. And as they come up as new creatures, born again by your Holy Spirit, Father, may they be lights to win others to your kingdom. Father, we pray for those who are standing who have stood to be sealed by your spirit. Father, strengthen that resolve. 
intellectually and spiritually that they cannot be moved. Please, Lord, I know the enemy punches at me often, and I know at times I feel weak, and if I feel weak, I know my brothers and sisters feel weak as well. So strengthen their resolve, Father. Strengthen their hands. Give them a greater experience with you that they may leave from your presence and be soul winners to advance your cause. Father, these are the last hours. Please, help us be faithful. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.